You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Uh, so today I'm very pleased to have with us Michelle Comercio, who is, uh, is that Comercio or is Comercio? Comercio, right. sorry. Uh, who's Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Vermont, and she specializes in uh, Central Asian uh, and Comparative Politics. Uh, her research issues relate to regime transition, ethnic politics, gender, and Islam in post-Soviet states. Her work has been funded by IREX, the National Council for East European and Eurasian Research, uh, American Political Science Association, University of Vermont. She's published in Central Asian Studies, Central Asian Affairs, um, other you know, prestigious journals in the field. Her first book uh, was entitled Russian Minority Politics in Post-Soviet Latvia and Kyrgyzstan. Very interesting uh, comparative cases, Latvia and Kyrgyzstan. The Transformative Power of Informal Networks, and it appeared in 2010, published by University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, her second book has been accepted for publication by University of Pittsburgh Press. It analyzes the political economy of polygamous marriages among the Kyrgyz. And so her current research focuses on obstacles women uh, who desire a career in Kyrgyz politics face, as well as obstacles in general uh, that women face in, in Kyrgyz politics. So um, her lecture today is about, uh, it's, I don't remember the exact title, it's polygyny, right? In, uh, polygyny, right. Polygyny in, uh, in Kyrgyzstan. And I'll turn the floor over to her. So please give her a warm welcome. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation. Oh, that's the lights. Thank you for the invitation. That's just me. Thank you for the invitation to speak, and I'd like to particularly thank Dave and Samira for inviting me, for um, kind of putting my name forward, and thank you, Krika, for, for allowing me to come and give my first in-person talk um, since COVID, so it's kind of exciting. Um, let's see if I can work the technology. Okay, so the talk is The Political Economy of Polygynous Marriages Among the Kyrgyz, and it is based on my book. Um, so I've kind of taken a leap here, and I'm sort of trying to present my book, um, which may be too much, but we'll kind of see. Feel free at the end to ask questions. I'm going to touch on a lot of different things. Um, so the first thing I want to say is that I use the word polygyny versus uh, polygamy because the, the phenomenon that I'm studying is a marital practice where a man has multiple wives. And that's what's going on with the Kyrgyz. The Kyrgyz men are uh, marrying multiple wives. And I should also say right up front that though there are exceptions most Kyrgyz men have two wives, not more than that. Um, it's onerous enough to provide for one household, never mind two, never mind three. So in this talk, I will talk about first wives, um, and they are women who remain married to their husband who has taken a second wife. And I'll talk about second wives, um, women who have agreed to 
become a second wife. And one caveat there is that there are instances of women not realizing that they are marrying a man who's already married. But again, um, I'm trying to think. I don't, there were very few instances of that that arose in my research. Most second wives voluntarily became second wives. So, what I'm going to talk about today is the emergence of what I call the normalization of polygyny among the Kyrgyz. And what I mean by normalization is this idea that um, there is this, this kind of tacit understanding and acceptance and tolerance of unconcealed polygynous marriages at the elite and mass levels of Kyrgyz society. Polygyny is actually illegal in Kyrgyzstan. Um, it's defined by the Kyrgyz criminal code as a crime against both the family and minors, children within the family. It's defined specifically as the cohabitation and keeping of a common household with two or more wives. And that part right there actually makes it difficult to prove polygyny in, in, a, in a courtroom. And then lastly, the criminal code does punish perpetrators with public service, correctional labor, and or a fine. In the post-Soviet period, I think in Kyrgyzstan there have been about five cases of, of um, polygyny that have been prosecuted. So it's criminalized, but it's not punished. Okay. When I approached this topic, um, I, I kind of focused on three different questions, three different research questions, right? Why a woman would agree to wed a legally married man, so that's the second wife issue. Why a woman would stay married to a man who's already, uh, who takes a second wife, that's the first wife issue. And then, you know, why would a man take a second wife given these penalties that are spelled out in the criminal code? I can talk more in the Q&A about how I arrived at this topic. I'll say for now that I, I kind of discovered it by accident and never intended to write a book on it. And then it just kind of, the topic sort of presented itself and I was fascinated by it and I ran with it. But it wasn't an easy thing to research because in addition to being illegal, right, it's obviously a pretty personal, private practice. Um, so when I thought about how to research it, I decided that the main thing I wanted to do was to have as many different data points as possible. So um, one of the first things I did was to consult you know, secondary literature to see if any work had been done on this. And I found kind of little snippets, you know, in, in, in a, uh, I don't know, in like a book on um, Stalin's campaign to eradicate the hijab, there'd be, you know, a paragraph or a couple sentences on Uzbek women in polygynous marriages. But the point is that there was very little written about it. So from there, I said, okay, that gives me a little bit, but not much. 
Um, from there, I decided to look at online uh, Russian language newspaper articles that pertain to polygyny practiced in Central Asia. So I kind of broadened it to see what I could find. And if you type in um, you know, polygyny in Central Asia, you're going to get a lot of, a lot of articles. Um, this is just kind of an example of one. Then from there, I looked at um, Kyrgyz legislation pertaining to the practice. And that, that kind of gave me some insight into how the state um, views and relates to polygyny. But then the, the, the real sort of core of my um, field research was that I sort of took it from two different angles. I interviewed um, numerous representatives of local organizations that in some capacity work on behalf of women. So crisis centers, human rights organizations, um, local organizations that work to promote gender equality, organizations like that. I also interviewed some um, relevant former and current government officials. Um, as you'll see later, I interviewed the owner of the Dordoy Bazaar for, for various reasons. And that was kind of to give me sort of like an outsider view of, of polygynous marriages. But then I wanted the insider view, right? I wanted to know what men and women in these marriages really thought about their marriages and why they had entered these marriages or decided to stay in these marriages. So for that, I hired a local research firm, and that firm conducted focus groups with men in polygynous marriages, first wives, and second wives. So that was how I approached it, and, and the idea was to sort of triangulate the data, right, to see if kind of there's, there's any kind of... Oh. Any kind of consensus onto what's motivating these marriages, and and how did we get to the point where where polygyny is normalized in Kyrgyz society? So I take um, a historical institutionalist approach to to my research in general, and. It, I don't know, for those of you who study political science and who know about kind of the debate concerning institutions, um, there's this kind of question of like, well, what's the relationship between formal institutions and informal? What's the relationship between um, kind of strategic calculation and culture? I found in the course of my research that there's, there's an institutional blend that we need to take into consideration so that, yes, institutions structure decisions that individuals make, right? And in my case, they, they structure decisions individuals make about marriage. So there's an element of strategic calculation that I'll come back to later on. But simultaneously, you know, there are these cultural parameters, right, of socially accepted behavior. And in particular, I, I, those are gender norms. Right, hegemonic constructions of gender, which I'll come back to, that limit the optimal decisions that individuals can make. So there's this kind of blend of, of the strategic calculation that, that women in particular make when they're contemplating 
marital decisions, but but all of that takes place within these the, the, the sort of cultural per parameters of, of their society, um, which I'll talk about. So in my book, I have one main argument about the normalization of polygyny, which is that it's become normalized because it's a rooted and recognizable practice, meaning both customary law and Islam legitimize the practice, but it enables both men and women, and the men part is kind of interesting, um, to meet these societal expectations about gender norms, and also in many cases to solve practical economic problems that you know that arose with economic reforms that Gorbachev implemented and continued with shock therapy and then continue today with kind of the ongoing economic uncertainty in Kyrgyzstan. So I'm going to unpack all that. Um, what I found in the course of my research is that there's these two instances of massive institutional change. And I call those based on the literature on institutions, I call those critical junctures. And a critical juncture is when brand new, in, brand new institutions are introduced, okay, that change um, strategic calculations made by individuals, and in my case, concerning marital practices. But those brand new institutions don't just simply replace existing institutions, right? They operate alongside the existing institutions. And that's what I mean by institutional layering. So you've got brand new institutions that operate, coexist with these existing institutions. The two critical junctures are the introduction of communist institutions, and then of course the abandonment of those institutions. As those two critical junctures occur, okay, there's this element of institutional endurance, meaning informal hegemonic constructions of gender or sticky, I like to call them sticky because they, they don't change, these, these hegemonic constructions of gender endure. So in the Kyrgyz context, um, the hegemonic constructions of gender, meaning sort of like the, the most powerful, pervasive ideas about how men and women are supposed to behave, they envision men as primary breadwinners, um, decision makers within their families, and as, you know, governors of the state, right? So men are expected to marry, have children, and importantly, they're supposed to have sons so they can continue the family lineage, and they're supposed to you know, govern their family and then govern the state. Women are also expected to marry, have children, in particular sons, right, for the same reason, they're supposed to raise their children and you know, manage, manage the, the household, right? They're supposed to keep the hearth, if you will. Those hegemonic constructions of gender have not changed, okay? 
oh, it's habit to go back to the computer and I'm holding this remote control. So the way I think about how the normalization of polygyny has, in, has evolved is by kind of thinking about it sort of in chronological terms, but more importantly in, in terms of the institutional environment in which the Kyrgyz are making these decisions. So if we think about the pre-Soviet era, okay, the main institutions that governed Kyrgyz lives were customary law, or adat, and Islam, both of which legitimize polygyny. Okay, so, so polygyny has kind of always been, for the Kyrgyz, an acceptable marital practice. But it was motivated by four different factors. And these, these factors sometimes overlapped. Um, more than one factor could motivate a particular polygynous marriage. But during the pre-Soviet era, polygyny was practice, practiced. Um, we don't really have a record of the extent to which it was practiced. We do know that these marriages were not concealed, right? Because there was no reason to conceal them. Customary law in Islam legitimize them. So what I found was that four factors contributed to the existence of polygynous marriages among the Kyrgyz during this period. Nomadism, the leveret custom, infertility, and affluence. So what I have up here are quotes that kind of demonstrate the way in which these factors served as mechanisms. Um, that facilitated polygyny. So, nomadic lifestyles. Tough, tough lifestyles, right? A lot of work fell on women. So much work that sometimes the women requested help, additional household labor. And that, that household labor would come in the form of a second wife. So this quote, um, it's kind of interesting. This quote is from a former minister of justice who, who attempted, when he was the minister of justice, who attempted to, to um, legalize polygyny. The attempt failed, but he argued that, that basically women had so much work, right, compared to men. <laughs> he kind of portrayed men as not quite lazy, but you know they had their little tasks and that was that. Women did the bulk of the work. Um, so much that a woman never had enough time, she needed an assistant, and so she'd be open to her husband taking a second wife. The leveret custom was also um, a factor because this, this was the custom where if a woman's husband died, um, which often happened, right, because there were lots of tribal wars and battles, and so if, if a woman's husband died, the, the larger extended family wouldn't want to abandon her, particularly if she had children, particularly if she had sons, right? And so the obligation fell on the deceased man's brothers. And one of the brothers, or the only brother, if there was only one, would marry the widow. Well, in many cases, the man in question was already married, right? So she became a second wife. Um, so, 
so the, the idea was to support the widow with the children, but also to, to kind of keep the family intact in order to continue the family lineage. This quote is from a respondent, and it, it's you know from her personal family history. Um, and, and she emphasized this idea that you know, the Leverett was all about preventing these, these children from becoming orphans. Um, and also the idea that you know, if, if a, the brother of a deceased man didn't, if his first wife didn't give birth, well then of course, right, he'd marry this widow because the whole point of these marriages, right, was, was to, to have children, to continue the, the line of descent. So that kind of leads into infertility, right? Um, so during this time period, fertility really determined a woman's communal status, right? It, it, that's really what mattered, whether or not she had children, and of course, whether or not she had sons, because it, it indicated whether or not she was capable of continuing the, the line of descent. Um, this one's, again, another quote from a respondent who was talking about um, her, her grandparents, right? So her grandfather, her, her grandmother married her grandfather, right? They had one daughter. Oops problem, right? She couldn't have any more, so they, the question arose, right? Should, should we have a, a second wife come into the household? Um, because it's customary to, for us to have many children. So the grandmother chose the wife, right, for her husband. But what's interesting about this is that she established these kind of rules, and she established herself, right, as kind of the boss. Um, you know, I'll live in the house, I'm the oldest, the manager, and what are you gonna do? Well, you're gonna have the children, right? That's your, that's your role. This idea of kind of a hierarchy between wives during this period came up a lot during my research, and you, and, and, you know, Kyrgyz historians have written about it, where the, the older wife, right, meaning the first wife, absolutely had seniority, and the second wife, was supposed to be subservient to the first wife. That sort of thinking, that mentality about second wives has, has carried over. Um, the, the Kyrgyz word for, for second wife is to call, and it's, it's a pretty, it's used in a derogatory sense, and it means powerlessness, Obedience. Um, one of my respondents, who she she runs a crisis center, and she kind of she prides herself on her ability to speak fluent Kyrgyz and fluent Russian, and she she translated the word to call as a sheep without horns. Right. Well, how powerful is a sheep without the horns? Not too powerful. Um, the last factor, affluence, is just the idea that, well, you know, of course, if a Kyrgyz man was wealthy, he was going to take a couple of wives for himself. And certainly that did happen, and it happens today to some extent. Um, this respondent was talking about her great-grandfather who had four wives, 
before the Soviet era. And the way, the way the story was told to her, they each had their own yurt. So he was very wealthy. They each had their own yurt, and he would visit he, sort of on a rotating schedule, <laughs> one yurt per night. And the other wives would, would eavesdrop outside of the yurt where he was. And she described a story, it, it's actually pretty um, shocking, where apparently one of the wives was eavesdropping, and I'm mean, sorry, the, the three wives were eavesdropping, and the wife in the yurt sort of got wind of this, and she got upset, and she grabbed something and like stabbed one of the wives who was eavesdropping, and um, <clears throat> that was the way that story ended. So. These four factors, right, contributed to polygynous marriages when customary law and Islam were the primary institutions governing Kyrgyz lives. Actually, I'm going to go back to that for a minute. The Communist Party, Soviet authorities, right, um, kind of checked this box, right, in, in settling the nomads for, in, you know, for our purposes, they eliminated this factor. Um, these other factors, right, to some extent remained, but the institutions that the Communist Party imposed on the Kyrgyz changed the calculations surrounding how to address these, these two issues. And of course, affluence was not eliminated, right? There were, there were wealthy communists and less wealthy communists. We all know that, but, but not to the extent that existed prior to the arrival of, of communism. So, this first critical juncture that I identify, right, the arrival of communist institutions. Um, again, these communist institutions that I'm going to talk about in a minute, they operated alongside of customary law and Islam. Neither customary law nor Islam disappeared, right? Uh, the Soviets weren't that powerful. They tried, but they didn't succeed. What they did succeed in doing was rendering polygynous marriages among the Kyrgyz pretty rare, concealed, and when detected, punished. So here I'm arguing that polygyny persisted because, precisely because, customary law and Islam still influenced decision making. But it was less common and hidden because these communist institutions rendered it risky and also shameful. So the, the institutions of communist morality, right? We all know about the Communist Party and the Komsomol. What I think is not as emphasized in the literature is the role that the Communist Party played in really kind of imposing its own ideas of morality and ethics onto Soviet citizens. And it did this through 
a variety of, of mechanisms. So Khrushchev in the early 1960s um, introduced, for the first time ever, the moral code of the builder of communism, which I only discovered as I was doing this research. It's fascinating. It lists, I believe, 12 principles of kind of ethics and morality that, that every communist was supposed to aspire to adhere to. And they were vague. It's not like they said, okay, polygyny, you know, a vestige of the past that has to be eliminated. It was more like honesty, loyalty, fidelity, um, you know, commitment to your family, so that would mean you know, divorce, infidelity, the taking of a second wife, those things were discouraged. Um, I should say, too, that for those of you who don't know, that the Communist Party did um, criminalize polygyny, okay? So it, it was illegal during the Communist um, period, as it is today. But the main kind of mechanisms for imposing this, this kind of vision of morality um, was sort of the moral code, the moral code that's kind of outlining how people should behave. But the question was, well, how do you kind of, how do you kind of enforce that, right? The comrades' courts were a main mechanism of enforcement. And these courts existed in factories, on collective farms. They could be set up in, in apartment block um, courtyards. The interesting thing is that it was women who were kind of tasked with, with bringing complaints to the courts. If a woman brought a complaint to a comrade's court about her husband taking a second wife, the court would convene. Um, and often, particularly, particularly if the man in question was a member of the party, strip him of his party membership, which had all sorts of consequences. So what I have up here, just to kind of give you a flavor of this, is, a, is an excerpt from a focus group with First Wives where they were talking about this. Um, and Elmira, right, talks about how, yeah, a wife could submit a report to one of these courts, and then there'd be this big meeting, public meeting, right? And what would happen if the, the accused was found guilty? Well, if he was party, stripped of his membership. And then they would dismiss him from his position and cover him, from, cover him with shame from all sides, right? So there was kind of this, this court mechanism that was designed to ensure that, the, that people adhered to the moral code, but there was also this, basically this public shaming mechanism that operated alongside with the courts. This quote is from a, from a different respondent um, who also highlighted the, the courts. And she argued that they were in every factory. And again, if a woman right, came to complain about her husband because he had a second wife, they'd pull him into this court, reprimand him at work for immoral behavior. Many of my respondents brought up this idea that actually women had a lot of power in the communist system, precisely because of these comrades' courts. Um, I had one respondent who, she, she worked for a local Islamic organization, 
and she kind of laughingly told me when we were talking about polygyny among the Kyrgyz during the communist era, she, she laughingly told me, look, she said, I always told my husband, I always reminded him that he was party and I was a komsomolka and therefore he could not step out of line. And it worked for her, I suppose. <laughs> so, polygynous marriages during the communist era, right? Rare, concealed, and when detected, right? Punished. That changes when the whole apparatus collapses and Kyrgyzstan becomes an independent state. The second critical juncture, right, is the abandonment of communist institutions. Uh, and of course, these institutions, you know, they didn't just disappear one day and become irrelevant that day, right? This was, this was kind of a gradual process, but the Communist Party, the moral code, all of that over time lost its meaning. And what happens is customary law continues to govern the lives of the Kyrgyz as it has. So does Islam, but because scientific atheism becomes obsolete, right? The Kyrgyz start practicing Islam openly. Um, it becomes more, more kind of meaningful in public discourse. And it becomes, in the, in the post-Soviet era, a mechanism for consecrating polygynous marriages. Because remember, they're illegal. Right, so you can't go down to the, the registry and, and record your second wife as a wife. That's not feasible. The state doesn't recognize those marriages. So how do you take a second wife? Through nikah, the, the Islamic um, marital ceremony, and, and that sort of announces your marriage to whoever you want to announce it to, right? Maybe it's family members, maybe it's your community, Maybe it's not many people at all, but the important thing is that that's how the polygynous marriage is formed. Um, so it's in the context of customary law, Islam, the lack of any kind of, of state ideology like communism that provides sort of a moral compass and the introduction of shock therapy and subsequent economic uncertainty. It's within that institutional environment that polygyny becomes normalized. So one thing to note is that um, the, the, the Kyrgyz state, the Kyrgyz government, right, thus far, there have been attempts, but it hasn't yet sort of crafted a state ideology that resonates with citizens of Kyrgyzstan, right? And so once these kind of institutions of communist morality collapsed and lost their meaning, this sort of permissive environment emerged. And if, if, you've, if you've ever kind of looked at the literature on the, the um, sort of post-Soviet economic transition in in Central Asia, you might come across the term wild capitalism. It's a term that, that Central Asians use to describe that time period where essentially there either were no laws or the laws were completely ineffective and all sorts of things 
happened in terms of the economic behavior, but also in terms of personal behavior. So shock therapy, the economic reforms that the Kyrgyz government introduced um, as Kyrgyzstan embarked on its path of independence, just completely, um, as elsewhere in the post-Soviet world, turned people's lives upside down, right? So it's, one of the things that's been interesting is to note the different ways in which the economic transition affected men and women, because it did impact them very differently. Men, many men, found themselves suddenly unemployed. And, and what that meant was not just, you know, kind of like, okay, I don't have a job. It was more, it was more um, kind of visceral than that, right? Because it meant that they could no longer fulfill the role of primary breadwinner, which, which, which meant that you know, their, their wallets were hit, but so were their egos, right? So were their kind of conceptions of, of their own masculinity. And the result was that a lot of them struggled and kind of took a while for them to find a niche in the, in the post-Soviet economy. Women, um, also many of them became unemployed or found you know, their, their current positions as teachers, for example, um, no longer paying enough money to support their families. Women, as a whole, kind of picked up the slack and set about trying to figure out how to support their families. And the way that this is relevant to the normalization of polygyny is that a lot of women um, sort of put their lives on hold in order to support their extended families, which meant that, you know, by the mid-90s, late-90s, early 2000s, there was this pool, I call, it, I call it sort of a pool of potential second wives, meaning women who were single in their 30s, maybe late 30s. That is a statistical outlier. Like, if you look at the data on um, the average age of Kyrgyz women, giving birth for the first time, you know, it's, it's early to mid-20s, right? So something like mid-30s, late-30s is a shock, right? It's a real, it's a really new phenomenon. Um, women who are single in their mid-30s, late-30s, often have a hard time finding a husband. Um, they're considered, and, and the word that the Kyrgyz use is they're considered old maids. Well, they have to support themselves, perhaps, maybe they're economically, maybe they're financially independent, but they, they want to, in many cases, satisfy those, those hegemonic constructions of gender. They want to get married and have kids. And so what, what I'll show you on, a, on another slide is um, a lot of women who participated in the focus groups who had voluntarily become second wives did so because they wanted to get married and or have children. 
but there weren't any men left, right, who weren't married because the single men who weren't married weren't going to marry these, you know, older women. Okay, so how did they become primary breadwinners in many cases? They entered the shuttle trade. And this is a really interesting phenomenon too because um, they, women decided that you know the easiest way to earn money was to basically take an empty suitcase, go to China, go to, uh, in some cases, Russia, Turkey, buy enough stuff to fill that suitcase, come back, and then sell it at the bazaar. And that's what the, the shuttle traders movement um, refers to. So the point is that the shuttle traders move, movement was composed primarily of women in the 1990s. So much so that the owner of the Dordoy Bazaar um, erected a monument a couple of years ago dedicated to the shuttle traders who, who really kind of got the Dordoy Bazaar off the ground. But, and it's kind of hard to see in this picture, but two of the three figures are women. And when I met with him, he emphasized the fact that this was really a, a monument to, to kind of um, honor the, the women shuttle traders. Okay, so shock therapy just you know really upends people's lives. A lot of women enter the shuttle trade. Um, so you've got these enduring hegemonic constructions of gender. You also have um, these senses of Muslimness um, or Islamic identities that you know never disappeared. They were never eradicated, but because in the post-Soviet era people are free to practice their own religion, they, they become more pronounced, and, and Islam and nikah in particular become sort of emerges as a way to consecrate these illegal marriages. And so you get to this point, I'm arguing, where polygyny is really a strategic resource um, for primarily women, but also men, um, that can resolve these problems related to hegemonic constructions of gender and also economic problems. All right, men. So I wanted to know why men would take a second wife, right? Given the fact that they're the ones who, if caught, right, are gonna be penalized according to the criminal code. So the first thing I did was to talk to, right, those representatives of um, organizations working on behalf of women, to talk to former and current government officials that are somehow, you know, able to speak to this topic. And I call those, I, I call that sort of the outside view, right? Those people aren't in polygynous marriages. And they, perhaps not surprisingly, argued that, well, wealth, right? I mean, look, there are now wealthy men who can afford to support multiple households, so why not? And they also argued that, and this is related to wealth, that <laughs> the acquisition of a second wife was kind of similar to the acquisition of a second car. 
In other words, it's a way to demonstrate your wealth, right? And so, in that sense, <laughs> it's it's a way to enhance your status. But I I got a different take from the men. <laughs> Again, perhaps not surprisingly, right? Because they're probably not going to admit that. Um, and I should say that the men who participated in the focus groups, the moderator, like, he tried. He tried his best to get these men, like, to talk about themselves. By and large, they wouldn't. They talked about their friend, their relative, their acquaintance. A lot of humor, sarcasm, misogyny, like, that's the way they communicated. But you could still tease out from the focus group discussions three main reasons that they articulated, okay, for kind of men in general taking second wives. So the first one, I call this, I call this the vexation syndrome. It's not unique at all to Kirti society, but you know, like, look, husband gets bored with his wife, decides to take another. And this quote kind of, um, is there to sort of demonstrate what I mean by the vexation syndrome, right? Well, she was different after she gave birth, she became weak, was unable to fulfill her wifely duties like she, you know, done in the past, before she'd given birth. She's often tired, she falls asleep, so I married a second time. All right, like, like I said, that's, that can be found everywhere. The second, the second, um, Articulated motivation that was really interesting. I call this the savior mentality, and it's related to the expectation that, you know, well, women are supposed to marry and have children. I mean, that's the only way they're going to be fulfilled. So the idea is that they're taking a second wife to basically rescue a single woman in her 30s because, right, she absolutely needs a man. She's got to get married to do things properly. These are good values, right? Rather than leave a woman single, it's better to marry her. And I think that the savior mentality kind of shows how these hegemonic constructions of gender are so entrenched in Kyrgyz men and women that both Kyrgyz men and women um, in sort of their interactions, in their decisions, reinforce these these ideas and that's why they're so sticky right so yes there are definitely alternative voices in Kyrgyzstan who speak up who who have you know alternative visions of um, kind of women and men and the roles that they should play but it's they're they're working constantly to sort of knock down these these stereotypes these expectations the last thing is that men have reproductive goals as well as women. Um, remember, they're supposed to get married and have children and ideally produce sons, heirs, right? So one of the men who, um, these are quotes from men who participated in the focus groups, but one of them said, well, there are many reasons men take second wives, right? Mainly, if the first wife can't have children. I guess it's never the man's fault. It's always the woman's fault. She's always the one at fault, right? But, um, and then this one, 
you know, concerns this idea of continuing the line of descent, right? Every man must leave his progeny. So if you live with your first wife for 10 years and don't have children, of course she'll agree to a second wife. Now, the focus groups with first wives <laughs> did not reveal to me a consensus at all that they had agreed to their husband taking a second wife. It was actually um, quite the opposite. So what's, it's interesting, when I, um, when I sent my book manuscript off to the University of Pittsburgh Press, the reviewers came back and said, well, you know, there, there's nothing in here about like satisfied first wives. And there are some, and some attention needs to be paid to that. So. So I did, when I like really dug into my data, I, I did find um, levels of satisfaction among first wives. And then I tried to sort of tease out, okay, well, so they're not leaving their husbands. What's at the root of this, right? And I basically found that there were kind of three different factors at work. Contributing to a woman's decision to stay with her husband after he's taken a second wife. One is this idea of um, well, a man has to continue the line of descent. Like, that's not optional. And that's articulated in Sabira's comment. I have their ages up here, too, just kind of so you can get a sense that, you know, we're not talking about young women here. Like, these, these are women. These are women who, um, well, you'll see it on the next slide more so, but um, you'll see what I mean. I, that, that didn't come out well, but let's turn to Sabira. So, okay, due to health reasons, I was able to give birth only to one son, and like that's insufficient, so we gotta continue the family lineage. So I agreed to a second wife. So here is an example of a woman who agreed, right? But the reasons are interesting, right? To continue the family lineage, like she expects, she knows her husband's gonna somehow or another have a son, so let's do it with a second wife rather than perhaps a prostitute. Um, and she's glad that he has children with a second wife, right? Because, because what she's done is she's enabled her husband to you know, satisfy his his the, the the gender norms that that he's expected to meet, and if he if she hadn't agreed to that, right, it would reflect poorly on her as well. Another reason is economic dependence, in the sense that the first wife just doesn't have the means to be economically independent, or the idea that. Um, a first wife wants to hold on to economic security in terms of her rights, for example, to inheritance. So Estelle said she, she was interesting because she compared you know, the first wife, the second wife, and the husband, right? That's the triangle, and said, well, if there's a triangle, it's, it's, the, it's the rights of the first wife that are infringed upon the most, because she tolerates humiliation from both her husband and the second wife. 
the young wife. Um, and when you tell him he can't go visit her, he argues, even raises his hand. Then he squeezes the financial situation, right? As if he wants to say, I provide for you, so be quiet. Some of the first wives were financially independent. Um, and that wasn't the reason that they were staying with their, their husband. Instead, they were staying with their husband to preserve their marital status. So marital status, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a resource. It's a currency in Kyrgyz society. Um, Elmira, who was 59 at the time, said she hasn't divorced her husband, even though for 10 years they've only been friends. And she was interesting because she has her own surname, unusual in Kyrgyz society, and she's financially independent, right? She doesn't need alimony or any other um, support from him, right, currently. But as his legal and registered wife, she does have a right to half the property. <clears throat> so she hasn't divorced him. And then she goes on to talk about how, you know, in contrast to a cell, she thinks, right, the second wife is oppressed. And in her situation, she's respected more than the second wife by her family, and in including her, her in-laws, right? So um, she goes to family events. She's got a higher status. It's like she's old and, and, and you know, older. The older a, a woman gets in Kyrgyz society, the more respect she um, garners. So when she stands at the table, her mother-in-law says, sit, sit, you know, let the younger wife do it. Um, being the second wife is not sweet. It means you're without rights and need to warm his old knees. Um, those are two very different interpretations, right, of kind of who suffers um, more. The second wives who agree to wed a legally married man do so in order to obtain marital status and or have children and or obtain economic security. Those motivations too are not exclusive, right? They're often connected, they overlap. Um, but Saikal, who was 38 at the time, had just given birth at 38, which is off the charts in Kyrgyz society. Um, right, she gave birth in a hurry. Uh, she was already getting old. She thinks she won't be able to give birth in two years. But here's the key: I gave him a son. Right, he's got a daughter with his first wife, but but I've won. Right, like I get the respect because I gave him a son, even though he may go with his first wife to these family events. Um, you know, I wanted to get married by hook or by crook. That's what I wanted. I knew there were children. I knew there was a wife. So that's, that's, that's sort of, in that quote, you see these two factors, right? Marriage and motherhood connected. Um, similarly, this quote from a representative of, of a local Islamic organization um, that meets a lot of women who are divorced um, finds that a lot of these women say, yeah, I want to be a second wife. Let him provide for me, right? There's the economic security. But I also want to have a child, right? My age is advancing. So again, overlapping motivations. This one is pure economics, right? So this, 
a representative of a local human rights organization referred to this Brothers Grimm story, the children's story about the, the pull of the golden fish. The golden fish provides, it's like magic. It provides everything. and it's, edu- it's economic. There are educated, smart women who want wealth but don't want to work themselves, who want everything prepared. The golden fish that provides everything. It's not that simple, right? These, these, these motivations are, are overlapping in most cases. So, sort of in, in, in terms of concluding the, the talk, um, I do talk about men, I do talk about hegemonic constructions of masculinity, but it's really about women. Um, and, and I'm basically arguing that they, they bargain with patriarchy. You, you may have heard of that, that concept, the patriarchal bargain. It's not my concept. Um, but they bargain with patriarchy to come to the best optimal solution for themselves. Um, It's a nuanced and complicated practice that can allow women to achieve gender respectability within their family and their community, right? They've, they've, They've kind of, they've gotten married, they've had children, right? They've fulfilled their, their sort of societal duties. Um, I do think it was interesting that the women who participated in the focus groups often compa- often conveyed like these kind of simultaneous senses of satisfaction and dissatisfaction, right? I mean, it's a really complicated thing that they're involved in. Um, and then lastly, that you know, I think outsiders are so quick to think of women who voluntarily maintain or enter polygynous marriages as being deluded or, or coerced. And, and my research really shows that that is not the case, that they're, they're doing this for very specific reasons within the institutional environment in which they, they make decisions. So I will leave it at that. Um, and I'm happy to take questions on anything.